0: Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators, who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Welcome to Improv Interviews, Aaron Krebs. Hi, Margot. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad to be able to chat with you today. We've been communicating for a little while and we have a lot of mutual friends in the improv world.
1: I feel like you know more people in Los Angeles than I do.
0: That's funny, because I'm coming to L.A. uh, over the holidays, and um, I'm hoping to see in person all of the wonderful people I've gotten to know over the years through classes and podcasts. Yeah, yeah.
1: sounds like you've got uh, a show you're doing, too, with Rich.
0: That's right, the Glendale Room.
1: Yeah, the Glendale Room. Yeah, let's pitch that.
0: January 1st. Thank you. (laughs) There
1: you go. So so, interviewing the interviewer, so... I will try my best to be the subject and not the interviewer.
0: Oh, please, please be the subject. Although, you know, it's really all about me anyway. So I'll I'll try not (laughs) to inject myself too much.
1: (laughs) Uh, We were talking pre-interview about your time at uh, Woodstock, and I find this fascinating. A music with a lot of improvisers, I think, is a mutual love, right? There's so much improv. Yes. And um, I'm just fascinated. I keep spinning on that conversation we just had about seeing Janis Joplin and uh, Jefferson Airplane and just the experience of that. And Jimi Hendrix. Is you and have Jimmy it Hendrix. written out? You, Have you talked to people about it? Is it recorded?
0: uh actually i appear briefly in a film about woodstock after a girl with flowers on her head i appear for a nanu second and i'm re- i'm wearing my flannel shirt and my jeans i hadn't really dressed for the weather and um i've written some short stories about it and, okay that's amazing and yeah yeah it was I, uh, incredible
1: I, yeah if if they if the question were posed And maybe this is in your interview if you had a time machine and where could you go to i would say woodstock that would be my answer yeah
0: it'd be great just wear shorts mosquito repellent and a change of clothes because after well i went swimming but i didn't get my clothes wet if you get my meeting there
1: Uh, i'm following you (laughs) i got you
0: now you're you're a writer as well aren't you
1: i write a little bit i do Mm -hmm.
0: i've been taking uh i've been going to the sketch school for several months with um mark Zeke and uh, it's just brilliant.
1: I I don't know him super well but I know of him by name and he uh, highly decorated uh, in the improv and sketch community people love Mark
0: it's great and um, we're going to get to your career but first I want to ask you about your childhood because you were growing up in Dallas in the 80s
1: and it wasn't the
0: monster city it is today huh
1: it kind of was like it was it feels like it's always the city up and coming. It's never the New York or Chicago or Miami. It's always like I think it's always like the 5th to 10th biggest city at any given time. Um right now it's exploding. It's there's so many people there. Um I think their Texas government does a good job on some things. They do a good job of attracting business there with the uh I think there's no tax on business. So, um yeah I grew up in the 80s in Dallas it was uh, I grew up in the city actually in Dallas and um it was still very suburban where I was. it was still houses it wasn't like you know the street trolleys and taxis and tall buildings and condo living it was um it was a house with a yard classic growing up uh in that time period, which was you know a lot of he-man GI Joe and uh, uh Star Wars, bike riding, TV dinners. Of, you know, the evolution of video games came through the 80s. Yeah. Um, A lot of good things.
0: So tell me about your parents and did you have any other siblings and a little bit about them?
1: Sure. Mom was an accountant uh, or did bookkeeping, essentially, not a certified accountant, but did bookkeeping for many years. Um, And then my dad was a surveyor. He worked for the city of Dallas, which is why we moved down there. He got that job. So he worked with math and survey uh, his whole life until he retired. Um, I had two siblings. I have two younger sisters, Sarah and Rachel. They both still live in Dallas with my mom. Uh, dad passed in 2016, but uh, mom's still there. Everybody's doing well. I have a, a couple nephews that live in town as well. They're all great.
0: Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. And, and is anybody else an artist in the family?
1: Um, in their own way. My youngest sister uh, and the middle sister also both have worked in artistic fields and I've, think that they're both very talented. Um, they don't want to do that. It's not something they aspire to do. Um, they've got other careers, but um, but both very capable artists, I think. Great. So yeah.
0: were you, um, a lot of times, kids that grew up to be improvisers and actors, sometimes mm-hmm. they're very intro- introverted as a child, and sometimes they're very extroverted as a child. Which one right. were you?
1: I was definitely extroverted. You know the class clown? Yep. Yeah. I was the guy who was making fun of the class clown. That's my uh, take on that. Um, yeah, I was definitely extroverted. Um, I I love the attention. Um, from a very young age, my dad, you know, taught me humor and and music, but humor. And I would love just the old classic joke, just to set up punchline jokes. And I would tell to, uh, Uh, his friends and, and, you know, anybody who would listen, essentially. I loved jokes. Um, I I cut my teeth in comedy on uh, all the albums of the seventies and eighties that dad had laying around. Um, You know, some of them we've had to retire, AKA the Bill Cosby album. Um, But the Carlin album, you know, HBO Mm -hmm. was becoming a force at that time. So I saw um, you know, um, Robin Williams live at the Met, Eddie Murphy, Ron Delirious, uh, Howie Mandel's set that he did the Bobby series, um, just like you know Kinnison, um, yeah, uh, Rita Rudner, uh, just all of these incredible '80s comics that were, uh, I mean, I say bubbling, but they were doing, they were clearly doing specials, so they were doing fine uh, at the time. But that's how I learned comedy. I learned it from, you know, watching these uh, different um, uh, stand-up specials and listening to stand-up records, you know.
0: Isn't that great? And yeah. Bob Newhart, who just turned 90, um, his records were really great, too. His – uh his lack of emotional affect when he would tell a joke. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. And really he was important. an accountant.
1: Yeah. it was just um, talking to my wife. I think we're going to go down a rabbit hole with um, the Jerry Lewis films, that like Bus Boy and yeah. uh, some of his other ones, and just like rewatch those and try to get a sense of... Uh, he's a comic genius also. That physical
0: comedy was incredible. Yeah, in and his face. Yeah.
1: And I kind of want to expose my daughter to that. I don't know that she'll do comedy, but she's got a, a funny disposition and um, I don't know. I just want to give her the option of seeing some of this, uh, some of this comedic greatness.
0: That's wonderful. Now, uh, while you were growing up, um, I was actually living in Manhattan when SL, SNL started and oh, always oh, regretted. I that. never, I never went to a show. I always regretted that um, the original cast, but how, how old were you? when You got exposed to SNL and did that impact? SNL, you? I was
1: probably like, What is it? Who said the quote, Lauren Michaels? As long as there's 12 to 16 year old boys, SNL will always be on TV. (laughs) I feel like I was 12 ish. Um, I remember Phil Hartman's uh, Frozen Caveman lawyer, uh, you know, the late Phil Hartman, who was amazing. And um, Dana Carvey, who uh, was an I like, I idolized Dana Carvey, just the idea of the impressions and. that that was a lane of comedy and cut to about six years ago Um, because I co-owned the West Side Comedy Theater with some friends and Dana Carvey did a run at our club and it was amazing for me to see Dana Carvey on our stage after he's, you know, he's the guy that inspired me in so many ways to do, to pursue comedy. Um, So it was just great to see him up there. And oh, um, I
0: bet it yeah. was did you ever see his show it didn't last very long cuz Robert Schmeigel was involved and it it uh have you seen his show
1: Which one the newest one
0: Um it was a couple decades ago um no, Bill, Bill Cott the Dana was Carvey in it show? Yeah the Dana Carvey show Bill Cott if you know him was in it I do
1: and, know Bill I haven't seen it I'll have to check it out
0: It's great. And they did a special about it. Um, Maybe I can find it and send it to you, but they did a special about it. And everybody was kind of talking afterwards about why it didn't succeed. Mm. Um, It was just too way out and crazy um, Mm -hmm. and some of the things they did. But um, by today's standards, maybe not uh, because things keep changing. I mean, think about Lenny Bruce and all the trouble he would get into. And then what we have today on HBO specials and Netflix. So, yeah,
1: yeah. What do you think about that? You think the good comedy lives at the edge of the um, pushing the envelope? Or do you think keeping it safer is, is where you're finding your best comedy?
0: that's a great question um I think I'll ask you what you think about it. I think you know I admire people <laughs> I know what you think that, I admire people that can stay clean like Jerry Seinfeld and sure. Newhart but I uh love I mean I really love uh Chris Rock mm-hmm. and I love um although he's gotten in some trouble Dave Chappelle sure um, and uh some of the out there so I think comedy is a lot of times a commentary on society yeah. And we're satiring and parodying. And I think that needs to be out there and uh as forceful as possible. If that answers yeah, what do you think?
1: I agree. I um I enjoy this the safe route for sure. Like Seinfeld to me is you know king, one of the greatest. Um Nate Bergazzi right now is yes, is the big push, he's the big guy, and his comedy is pretty clean as well. And I've, I always admire that. Tom Segura's comedy, a lot more aggressive, a lot more edgy. Um, and I think the things, you know, like Chappelle will push, these are his opinions and you can find them funny or you can, you know, it's the buffet of comedy. You take what you like and move right. on. If you don't. Um, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy, if we don't push the envelope, we don't evolve. We don't grow. If we don't feel uncomfortable, we yes. don't grow. So, you know, I think that it's imperative that comedy, continue to push. And then it, that people also push back. I think that that's important as well, you know? So the movement knows where to go. It's an ebb and flow. So without the push and the push back, we don't, we don't grow.
0: Absolutely. And I'm thinking about Spolin. We're going to talk about her in a second, but stepping into the unknown, mm-hmm. letting the intuitive reign instead of the safe, yeah. you know, logical brain. So when did you start acting in, in school? Were you in shows in elementary school? Oh, and what instrument did you play?
1: I, I played a little piano by the word little. I mean, very little. I did not want to play piano. My mom made me take it for like eight years. And Miss Nevins, who I think was 92 at the time, uh, did not want to teach piano, but needed to, I think, for income. She wanted to watch people's court. So early on, I figured out if I come in, we had an hour lesson. If I come in and for the first half hour, play the book, and the second half hour, just sit on the couch with her and watch people's court, she wouldn't say anything to anybody. And I didn't say anything <laughs> to anybody. And for about most of those years, probably about... When she was like 85 to 92, I probably watched just Judge Wapner uh, and, and uh, Doug Llewellyn rock people's court the entire time. Oh, that's so I'd so go funny. play like two little Indians, Elise, some other little numbers, and I'd be like, ah, I'm good. And I would just go and sit and watch whatever she was watching in the corner there.
0: Oh, that's hysterical. My piano's so teeth.
1: I, I wish I had paid better attention to music. I r- truly love it. Um, I, you know, I tinker with drums now, but I am not good at all.
0: How about singing? Do you like to sing?
1: No, I'm the, I am the—I am literally the worst singer you've ever met.
0: So you're great in musical improv.
1: Oh, yeah. I've been asked not to sing before. Like, <laughs> that, I wish that was a joke. I am terrible. I am just terrible at it. But I love it. I love when people do it well. I feel like I'm rhythmic, so the drums feel right. They work. I can get there. Just no good otherwise. Uh, uh your other question acting yeah i you know i did uh childhood acting like most people would do like your you know your elementary school play your my mom took us all to church a lot so i did a, a lot of church plays um i think i played a lamb when i was like seven years old i don't know in you know, some church play or something like that
0: adorable yeah, i, I you know, love it a lamb
1: Um, and then I I didn't really do acting I didn't get into it until high school and it was a requirement you had to do I don't know like HOMAC or theater arts or something and I was like all right I'll take theater arts it seems fun I like um I like doing jokes seems like a good spot for me uh and went in there and had a great teacher Miss Rebecca Stevens and um I didn't audition for the school play and I told her I would. And then I, you know, a couple of days go by and the guy who had the lead of the play had a grade issue problem. So she came to me in class and said, I know you didn't audition, but we would like you to join the play for this role. And it was uh, not the musical version, but the play version for high schoolers of Les Mis. And she wanted me to play this character named Jean Valjean, as I called him back then. Yes. (laughs) And uh, there was Cosette and Jean Valjean. This was Texas. So, um, (laughs) and then I came back, she promptly corrected me. It's Jean Valjean. It's French. And I was like, he's got a lot of lines. I don't know about this. she's like, I think you can do it. And believed in me. And I did it. And, you know, uh, everybody says when they were bitten by the bug, that was it. And I've tried to shake that acting bug so, so many times but it just stays with me. Yeah. It's um, something that when it's working right, I, there's nothing better, right. nothing better.
0: It's, it's who you are.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I tried to go to, I went to college for acting and then I, then I changed to law and then I went back to acting and then I moved to business and then I went back to acting. Then I moved to communications and graduated with a degree and immediately packed up shop and moved with buddies to Chicago to do acting. Um, I thought we started a business, uh, an improv business. And then I was like, well, I'm going to move to LA and do something else. And then I moved here and just did acting and improv. So like it's, I've tried to shake it so many times. I just opened a business. Uh, the, uh, SAG strike ended last night. Yes. I go right back to acting the moment they'll have me. So that's, that's who I am. That's what I do.
0: I don't want to so correct.
1: Cool. I don't want to, I really don't want to write too much. It's like acting.
0: That is so cool, and yeah. and we're going to get to your acting career in a second. But I wanted sure. to ask you when um, when you went to Chicago, were you studying improv there?
1: Yes, I was studying with your friend and mine, Liz Allen. Uh, so, I was at UMass Amherst with a group of friends, and Liz came out to uh, for a, a, a festival um that we started there the big no not the big stinking improv that was often it was uh the new england college improv jam is what it was called and i don't know i think the first year we had like 10 maybe 10 groups and second year we had like 20 groups so for us in the late 90s that was a big deal yeah yeah and we had hired the improv olympic road show to come do workshops and um and, uh, yeah, just workshops, teach classes, hang out, talk improv with us, and do a few shows. And we met, um, I think at the time it was Kevin Mullaney, Paul Grandi, um, Stuart Ranson, Rachel Mason, Liz Allen. I love there? Rachel. Rob Janish, maybe? I don't know if Rob came on that tour, actually. But it was um, amazing. I mean, it was the first time we saw long form. We were all doing short form uh-huh. um, at the college show, the Mission Improvable show. And um io came in and did long form and you're just kind of like what was that There was like a play but they made it up but it like wove within itself like how did they remember this and that And that woman was listening so well like how did she do that and we'd all taken workshops and a couple of us took grandy's workshop and i'm a huge paul fan i l- loved my time working with paul very short in chicago uh we moved i moved before i ever got to really work with him but um which Paul the other was guys. I'm,
0: I'm sorry. What Paul was that?
1: Paul Grandi. He's okay. fantastic. Yeah. Have you had him on here? No. Oh, you should find him. Okay. And tell him that we still speak well of him. Um, but a couple of the other guys took Liz's workshop and they were like, No way, we, we should bring Liz back. So we brought Liz out independently of that festival a couple times while we were in college just to work with us. And they were right. She was, I mean, you've met her, she's amazing. She's not. Yeah. She's not an improv teacher. She's like a life teacher. You know what I mean? And for us, all of us uh, bandits who, you know, were in college, thought we knew everything but knew absolutely nothing. You know, it's a great time of life. And to have that kind of um, wonderful figurehead in your life was great. I I think we did. And we moved to Chicago. and She was our coach for, I don't know, five, six years. Wow. Wow. um, while she was coaching Bahala, she was also coaching Mission Improvable. And um, we would do these uh, uh, rehearsals with her. And it wouldn't be a rehearsal. It would just be like therapy. And it was, she was like, all right, we're not going to rehearse. Yeah. Like, what's going on with you? You over there, what's going on with you? What about this guy? What's, what's his problem? Um, uh. And just worked through it. And, you know, her love of um, ensemble, uh, permeated. And when you have a group of guys who we all lived together, we all had gone to school together. We were all friends. Um, we all did a, a traveling road comedy show together at the time. Uh, it was great. It was phenomenal to have her leadership in that. She was instrumental in making the the Mission Improbable World what it is today. We have six six shows that travel to colleges. Um, and we have the comedy club out here in L.A., and various people are doing various projects, and that's all Liz Allen.
0: Isn't that wonderful? It's like divine intervention or something. It's just so powerful.
1: You know how it goes. There's moments where um, life and, and opportunity and chance all kind of cross each other, and they intersect, and that was that time with Liz.
0: Yeah, that's great. I, I yeah. found a coach. In fact, he suggested I contact you. That's Jay Succo.
1: Oh, and, great. And um,
0: he's been my coach for several years. And I feel like I've really grown and I feel more confident in myself. And I just love Jay. I love playing with him.
1: He's great. I, uh, I enjoy Jay always. What I enjoy most about Jay are the stories I hear about Jay, about how great he is. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I've never heard anyone say a bad word about that guy. No. He's phenomenal. I'll tell you a funny Jay Suko story. We were um, doing a Mission Improvable show at a college somewhere in Illinois, I think. And we were playing this classic game where you get, uh, you get a noun and you tell stand-up pun jokes about it. The goal of the game is to be as punny and awful as possible. right. right. Um, and we always would say, like, do a character, be a character when you go up there. So different people would be various characters. Jay would be a character who did impressions. So he would come up and he would say, uh, you know, if this is just with pencils, he'd be like, I don't know anything about pencils, but you know who does? Former President Richard Nixon. And he'd turn around <laughs> and come back and be like, all right, pencils. And he would tell these jokes. And it was so <laughs> funny to watch Jay just do the various characters. I don't even remember what his dumb punchlines were, right? We all had right. stupid punchlines. But just to watch him do like, I don't know anything about, you know, refrigerators, but you know who does? Jim Henson's Kermit the Frog. <laughs> Home, <Hi-de-ho. laughs> just <laughs> so funny. <laughs> that is one of my first memories of Jay. And he's been uh, a delight the entire way through. He's been wow. awesome. And I'm That's so happy great. for his success.
0: Well, let's stop talking about him. Um <laughs> <laughs>
1: Forty minutes on him if you want to.
0: Yeah, we if could the Jay Suco hour. So welcome um,
1: to the Jay Suco hour. Sorry, uh, not Jay Suco. Uh, it's just people who talk about Jay.
0: That's a great idea for a theme.
1: <laughs> you just do a podcast about somebody who's not even here. <laughs> just watch on people. Uh, We've done so, the Liz Allen chapter, the Paul Grandi chapter, the Jay Suco chapter. Uh, so. All amazing people, by the way. So I, I like I like this idea, this new idea.
0: Incredible. I used to do a monthly show where I'd invite all kinds of wonderful people like Jay, David Escobado, um, yeah. uh, Dina Kreese, all kinds of wonderful folks. Bill Cott was in it, where I was like, I touted myself as the best improv teacher in the world. So, you know, it would be like, forget about yes, you Uh, want to say no uh, to everything you're offered. And by the way, hog that stage, take the focus, don't give anything away. And they'd be my students in this class. These (laughs) are like really great uh improvisers and I'd be spewing nonsense. Mm -hmm. We we had a lot of fun with that. (laughs) but I like this I idea. think that class
1: is actually being taught at some improv schools around the country.
0: <laughs> well, it came from somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. Any, anyway. Um, yeah. how, did, how did you find your way into improv? How did you find your way into improv?
0: I had a brain aneurysm. and um, Oh, my God. I had a brain aneurysm. And I I came out of the surgery, obviously, okay. And a friend of mine was Mm -hmm. in local community theater. And she said, why don't you try? You know, you've always been kind of dramatic. Why don't you try acting classes? And and acting, you had to learn all these lines. And I was 60 at the time. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't really like the idea of memorizing. But when I went to that first improv class, I was bit. Magic. And then we had a troupe very quickly. And then, because I've been teaching a lot in my previous life, I started teaching fairly quickly as well. It's great. Probably very bad teaching, but I was teaching, and, and and that's what I love today. I love playing, and I love teaching.
1: Well, I mean, a, I don't assume you're a bad teacher, but I hope you are teaching. Hog the stage, say no. Yeah. Take the focus. <laughs> there's a there's a great exercise actually. I'm jo- we're joking around, but there is a great exercise that. I don't. I don't recall where I got this from. Most exercises are all regurgitated from somebody else, and it was um, do the world's worst herald. Is yes. What it is. And so you speed through the world's worst herald, which is a fun, fun exercise. You just oh, take that sounds great. All the rules and turn them on their head, and all the guidelines, I should say, and turn them on their head, and do the world's worst version of it.
0: That's awesome. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Now. When you were working with IO, Sharna was there. At with IO. Yes, yep. Yeah. But Dell, I forgot when he
1: died. Sorry, you cut out there a little bit.
0: Okay, I said I forgot when Dell passed. So
1: I was in class. I was in class in ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. There at IO, and Dell passed away, I believe, early ninety eight or late ninety seven. No, nine maybe late ninety eight, early ninety nine. Um, And we were in the level five, he was the level six teacher, and he passed away. So I'm literally the first generation of improvisers who did not work with Dell directly. I took workshops with him at various festivals, um, which were always very interesting. Um, I know he has a reputation of being abusive, and I definitely saw that. Um, I saw that in just verbally abusive with some people who either weren't buying into what he was teaching or there was something about their behavior that set him off the wrong way. He was never that way to me. Um, But, you know, I've, I didn't see the worst stories that people have said. I don't know, you know, I don't claim to know what's true and what's not true. Um, But yeah, I, I did see him remove somebody from class for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: there's, there's sometimes it's a lot of strong opinions about Del Close, who I never met, of course. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, he was a polarizing figure for a lot of people, a guru to some an abuser to others. Um, you know, Jeff Griggs wrote a great book called The Guru, if you've read it. Um, and I think that that's such a fascinating snapshot. Obviously it's Jeff's uh, experience with Dell, but, I think it gives a really great example of like the stories and the fun loving nature of Dell, while also discussing kind of his, his demise as he was, you know, getting older there at the end. And um, it's both funny. And I found myself, I read it on a plane. I found myself laughing out loud and crying at the same time, Mm -hmm. but you know, I don't want to discount people's experiences that they had in any way. I just, um, I enjoyed my time, very limited time with him. And I thought he was uh, incredibly insightful and inspiring and that he believed in this process, that the process is the product more than than anything, you know.
0: Well, some of the people I've met over the years have been instructors at uh, Second City like uh, Michael Gelman.
1: Sure. Yeah, I had Gelman.
0: Yeah. And uh, he, he's he gone through changes in his life. I, I love his little book. I think it's one of the nicest little books. There's so many books on improv. Um, mm-hmm. I've always thought about writing a book on improv, but what could I say? You know, it's yeah. <laughs> there's so many out
1: there. I think the, now back when I was learning, there was, I mean, Sharna had her book um, that was written and there was Keith Johnstone's book. There was, um, I'm missing something improvised by Mick Napier had come out like mm-hmm. right while we were in Chicago. And I found that to be just like the handbook of how improv yes. goes. Yeah, It is, he has such a great uh, ability to make the ideas and guidelines of improv digestible. You know, chapter one is like, there are no rules. Yes. There were shows people laughed. They all said they laughed when you did that, or they didn't laugh when we did this. And I'm paraphrasing Um, and so like that those begin to stick. And when you start to peel it back the onion layers, you start realizing like, oh, there there really aren't rules to any of this. There's a guidelines to efficiency. And at the end of it, it's am I taking care of the people that have entrusted me to be on stage with them? Uh and if your answer is yes, then you're doing it right. It, you know, Liz's great quote about if they're not laughing, they're listening, and that's more powerful right it yeah always sticks with me. yeah right you don't have to make people laugh you owe them nothing though. like you have to make them listen and you have to uh honor the trust that you're given by the others
0: yes oh that's beautiful i know when my was taking my first classes i was given this list of 10 rules and then yeah. when i read improvised i threw it out
1: yeah it was like know, whoa what <laughs> yeah You know, and I I understand and I'm not, um, there's an elementary way of learning that we all have in our brain. You're a teacher, you know, this better than any of us. So like getting something that helps you take this nebulous concept and boil it down to like, these are the rules is helpful, but it's also so destructive because what it does in turn is it teaches you just to create within this idea and you're in your head the whole time, Mm -hmm. um, so I get it. I get that it's helpful and it's a teaching tool, but I really, I think people that I've taught, I would would say it was frustrating when you work with Aaron because he would say, this is a guideline. If it works, do it. And if it doesn't, don't do it. And they would want to know this binary way of doing improv. Right. I do one plus one, will it equal two? It's like, no, see what happens if one plus one equals five, you know? Yeah. So Again, I understand the list of rules and guidelines, but I would throw it out the door from the get go.
0: Yeah, throw it out the door, kick it out with a cat.
1: I'm it. a dog person. Give a mixed book and be like, just read that. Right. You know, Liz that's and right. Jimmy's book is also fantastic. You know, that's another great one. Um, I think somebody learning should uh, pick that up as well.
0: Jimmy Corain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. I actually went out to Chicago all the way from Florida once to study with Jimmy, and then he was here in Florida. I, I love oh, that guy. He's really
1: cool. Um it's great.
0: So where did that name Mission Improbable come from? Because I love it so
1: much. You know, it came out of the 90s with just a pun off Mission Impossible. It's right. it was just, honestly, it's a stupid name. It's just a dumb name. And when we moved to uh, out of college to Chicago, we had all of these I don't know, like promo videos and a press kit we had put together. Our goal was to turn improv into a business. Like we left college thinking, what is our job going to be? Our job is going to be the business of comedy. So uh, for us to change our name while we were in Chicago, because Sharna hated the name. I think everybody hated the name. Um, It's just so hokey. And, you know, improv in the late 90s in Chicago at IO, it was – there was like a social ladder to it. There was a weird, there was some weirdness to it in a lot of ways, a lot of greatness. uh, But, you know, I think think we were very much looked down upon because of the name, but it's simply, we kept it because all of our press material said Mission Improbable from college. So we kept that in order to find an agent, in order to find markets, in order to take our short form show, and package that and start selling that to like cruise ships or performing arts centers, fringe festivals, military outlets, um, summer festivals, anywhere we could find that had a booker. We were like, Hey, this is this is a rock and roll style comedy show, it's fast games, it's like comedy sports with rock and roll on it. Um, <laughs> you know, we didn't reinvent the wheel, comedy sports and Um, You know, Keith Johnstone had been doing it for years and years before we ever got there. But we just kind of quantified it and found markets for it. We added the business element to it. And that's what we did professionally. We toured comedy. We toured improv. It's so great. It's still going here. 23 years later, it's now six different programs and, you know, a comedy club of its own. That's
0: wonderful. So let's go now to when you got to L.A. and you you started. How did when did you how soon did you start the West Side? I mean, what happened? Uh,
1: Well, I got here first of of the owners of Mission Improvable. I got here first and I thought I thought we would be done. I thought I was leaving it behind me in Chicago. But um, the guys all moved out here one by one.
0: I'm sorry, I interrupted
1: you. Um, What did you just say? Uh, I moved here to L.A first from Chicago. And then the other owners slowly moved out over the years. And I moved here in 2002.
0: And did you start auditioning for film and TV when you got Mm -hmm. out there?
1: Correct. I mean, when people move here, not as much as you want to audition for uh, stuff, but uh, I did. I actually got a great audition right out of the gate on that 70s show. And it was a large role. And I learned a very valuable lesson that I I use still to this day in my acting class, which is it was like seven pages. My agent said, find a coach, get a coach, practice this. This must have been like 0304. Practice this, know it, go in and destroy it. I took zero acting classes. I took uh, no note from my agent to get a coach. Didn't get a coach at all. You know why? Because we do improv. (laughs) <laughs> we know what's going on. If the lines don't work, I'll just make them up. <laughs> so I go into this a wonderful casting director, G. Charles Wright, who has given me this wonderful opportunity, and I pissed it away so poorly. By uh, I would I would uh, pace around the room. This story is humbling. I don't mind. You. Uh, I would pace around the room. I, I would read right from the page. Is it like I never made eye contact? I never brought the world in. I just read it right off the page. I would improvise all my funny thoughts because who needs these writers? This is Aaron. I've got the funny thoughts. Uh, I, I would. I was theatrical about it because I had just done three and a half, four seasons of the improv tour. Uh, and, you know, you're playing to sometimes a thousand people in a big auditorium. So I was huge. I was playing. I was joked that I wasn't playing to the casting room. I was playing to the entire five-story building. Um, <laughs> And then I left with all the sure confidence in the world that I was booking wow. this role. I mean, this was it. It was like a couple episode guest star. I'm in. I get a call from my agent later that day and she says, what did you do? And I was like, I booked it, huh? She's like, no, he called me and dreamed me out because I sent in an illy prepared actor into his office for a role of this caliber. Did you, have you been taking the acting classes? No. Did you get the coach I told you to call? No. Do you really want to be an actor? Me pause 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 pause. I've messed up. You know what I mean? So that was the humbling moment that I'm sure on some level all improvisers go through as we transition into the scripted world. Um I thought I knew more than everything because I feel like improv teaches us to be sure of ourselves in that sort of way. Mm-hmm. And most of that's just my own dumb choices. It's, you know, me making terrible, terrible choices. But um uh yeah, she backed, she 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 never cut me, but I'm certain that she put me on the back of that list. And I sat there for five, six more years on her roster and never saw another audition. And I don't oh. blame her. I, I get it.
0: But you started taking acting classes.
1: Oh, immediately after that. Immediately. I I studied at David Kagan. I studied um, Stan Kirsch Studios, which I still work with a little bit out here. Um, It's a playhouse I worked at for a little bit. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I took independent classes for a while. I started an acting studio for a bit and we would hire outside teachers to come in and teach us. And um, as much as I could learn, I tried to soak it up after that because You know, the the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know anything.
0: Well, then eventually Um, you you did get cast in some things.
1: I mean, I've got some minor roles in there. We're not talking there's no Oscar winners in there. But if you're looking for like the drunk guy at the bar, that's probably me. In so many ways Um, (laughs) you know. there's like uh, I'm, I'm having fun with it is what I say nowadays.
0: And Modern Family.
1: Sure. Absolute blast. Incredible production. I got to work with Stone Street, who had been in Chicago. He was, an, you know, somebody who I looked up to when I was first starting. He had moved out to L.A. and uh, I shot a scene with him. He was super nice, uh, one of the nicest guys. He was like, "Hey, come hang out on the trailer while you're not doing anything." I sat there. Got to. I mean, he has this. He had this incredible trailer. I think my dumb joke was like, "Oh, this is what winning an Emmy will get you, huh?" He's like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just help yourself to any of them." The cold cuts or whatever, buddy. Uh, but he was such a nice guy. Yeah.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah. And and then I was impressed. A drunk, a drunk customer and mom, because I always like that. Cool. Being in recovery, I always liked that show mom. I thought it was great. Sure.
1: Yeah, I was just like a just a drunk idiot in the scene. Very small role. Um I got I did get to watch an idol of mine, Allison Janney, work. Yes. I was not in a scene with her, but it is a uh, sitcom style. So you're there while they're shooting the various scenes, and it works on different stages within the same building. Uh, And I got to watch her work, which was amazing. Uh, I bet Hannah was. Ferris is also in it. She was a delight, always incredible. Um, But watching Allison Janney was a treat.
0: I bet it was. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So- so, um, so you you you're an entrepreneur. You've you've created the West Side. You have some partners that are on West Side with you, or how did that work?
1: I do yeah, all of the gang from Mission Improbable, We're all still uh, various versions of us are still doing different projects together. Um, we opened the West Side Comedy Theater in 2009. Um, one of our guys, Lloyd Alquist, was the GM of the West Side Eclectic, which was in that space. And then the guy, Mark, who was working on or kind of ran and owned the West Side of Collected, he wanted to make a change. I think he was having a kid and he just kind of wanted to make a little different change for himself. Um, So he put it up for sale, so to speak. I think maybe two or three people connected with him about taking over. Um, And we wanted to do it. I don't know if we were the best offer, but I think he saw that we were the most serious about running a comedy club um, and did, you know, I, I think what the West side is great about is uh, it's held on to kind of an eclectic version of comedy. So we are not IO. We don't just have improv all the time and we're not the comedy store. We're not stand up all the time. We mm-hmm. have a sketch program that's going in. We have about 60% up, 35 to 40% um, improv and sketch. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. We only have one stage. It's a room that seats like, you know, 80 people. Uh, it's got a little bar there. It's an incredible, incredible community of of um, amazingly interesting people.
0: I bet. And, you know, when you told me that Dana Carvey story, were there other people of his, ca- not of his caliber? No, sure, necessarily? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Yeah. Humbly, uh, we've been graced with uh, Seinfeld. Chappelle, huh? uh, Chappelle, Eric David, yeah, Chappelle many times. He's been there many, many times. His friend Neil Brennan produces our Tuesday night lineup for us, so Neil tends to bring, uh, you know, drop ins that are a list most of the time. Um, yeah, Larry David was there. Um, Seinfeld oh, was only there the one time. I'm trying to think of others. Uh, Chris Rock came by. Uh, he was there, and then just like. Uh, a who's who of other people have have dropped in to do stand up over the years it's been great
0: so there's i'm sure there were a lot of highs but were there ever any lows at all
1: yeah every time we have to do a business meeting there's a low no i'm just kidding um it is um no for the most part it's been fantastic there are lows here's the low um when the world shuts down for, you know, a year and a half to two years, uh, when there's riots that are happening right in front of your business, you know, our GM, Chris Gorbos, to his credit, uh, has ushered through some just, he ushered us through some incredible times, you know, he um, he kept us afloat during the pandemic. He found ways to do that. Um, he kept us from being uh, destroyed or burned down during, you know, the riots. Um, and he's created a, uh, an environment, you know, that is working. Uh, we pay all of our people. We don't do the improv intern model. Uh, we started with that and then pivoted off of it. We wanted to make sure that people right. are getting paid for their time. Right. There. So, yeah. um, we employ an outside HR company. Um, we recognize that a lot of these improv and comedy clubs have, um, HR issues and that's going to happen when yes, you have people yes. personally working with people. Um, I don't think that those issues are solved by the institution itself coming to, um, a judgment on what happened. So we, um, we, uh, out of our own pocket, we hired, a uh, and retain an HR firm that does independent investigations on every claim. Any student can contact them. Any teacher can contact them. Uh, that's all made public. I believe it's on the website or available at the office. Um, we uh, We don't pick our lineup. So we have resident teams. The teams run in six to eight week runs. They are voted on by a panel. The panel is a diversity panel with one owner only. Uh, present on the panel as well. So if the audience doesn't like the shows that are being done, come vote uh, for the next ones. And it also gives people different groups, opportunities to get up there. It also is a litmus test. If there's 20 shows that audition uh, in front of this panel and eight go up, well, eight were ready to go up and the others need to work at getting better to go up to be paid improvisers. Um, we'd pay our show producers. Uh, the Mission Improbable show is revamping right now. Each one of those performers will be paid as well. Um, what I think Chris and the company uh, have done uh, is we looked at as performers, what are the problems we ran into at the places that we went? And I don't want to besmirch these places. They're phenomenal at creating this uh, art that we're all taking part in, right? But just the day-to-day running of them is tricky. And I, we recognize that. And we what we wanted to say was, what did we run into when we were at these places that was frustrating? What are the problems that we read or hear about from others that are frustrating at the places they're taking improv or learning improv? Um, and how there's an answer to all of these. And usually it's not gonna be the most financially advantageous answer. But there's also a benefit. We don't, you know, there's seven to eight, nine of us that own the comedy club. Nobody's going to make millions of dollars. It's all being split and spent and pushed back out. So what if instead of instead of looking at every single penny and figuring out what's the best way to make a penny, what if we say, let's spend most of that and create an environment that is fair and fun and safe for all of us? And again, that's not to say other places don't do some version of this. I think it's the evolution of where theaters will have to go if they want to stay open and succeed. Um, You really need to let the community support the theater itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, and this is like I'm rambling.
0: No, no, no. I I am so impressed by the brilliance of your business ideals because there have been so many theaters that have either fallen apart or the or a lot of people get fired a lot of people there's bad blood there's all kinds of stuff in the past few years we've seen so much of it actually i think
1: the question that we always come back to is why and why did it fall apart you know well this happened and that person didn't listen they didn't do a thorough investigate thorough investigation about it they took so-and-so's uh story who they've known for 20 years over somebody who has just as much right to their story, who's sitting right there also. Um, So, you know, I always come back to it. There's not a right or wrong way to do all of this necessarily. I think there's an efficient and a non-efficient way to do it. So the efficient way to stay in business is to listen to the people that are telling you stuff. Right. So right. Exactly. I feel like that's what Chris has done really well with. So, um, yeah, to answer your question about low points, I, I think there was a few, but I think it's been mostly high points. It's great.
0: And we're all friends. That's the thing. You're friends. Yeah. yeah so that's beautiful. I
1: mean, we've known each other for years. At this point, we're all more family than friends. You know what I mean? The, most of them are at my daughter's different events, birthdays. We all... We'll do stuff together. So it's uh, a lot of us are flying back to Chicago in two weeks to, um, you know, take our, our agency out to dinner and meet some of the employees and do some of that. So, yeah.
0: So cool. So, but then there came a time when you made a decision about your involvement with aside.
1: Yeah, for me, I've taken a little break and it was kind of, it's kind of organically happened. I took a break in 2018 when my daughter was born. I just wanted to spend more time with her. Mm -hmm. um she's lovely i really enjoy her i would like to spend time with her Um,
0: interview her next time
1: yeah yeah have her on (laughs) she'll say stuff like i like blue (laughs) Um, so uh i took off two years to do that and um i was playing a little bit with this group called county line which landon who you talked with was in Annie and Levin O'Connor were in Nick Armstrong was in Mm -hmm. Um, it was other fantastic people Jillian Bellinger was in it there was some great people in it yeah and um, I was moonlighting a touch with them and then the pandemic happened uh, and then I was not in the online improv camp so I I stayed out of it I just I just looked at like here's more time with my daughter that's fine I'll do that that's great,
0: that's um, great.
1: so and then during the pandemic we decided to move out a little further outside the city. so I moved we moved out to Santa Clarita so now I'm like 45 minutes with no traffic to the uh to the comedy club um you know which isn't terrible but uh, I like to go to bed at like nine o'clock. I'm such a sleeper um so uh you know driving to do the 10 p.m show, and then coming home, driving an hour home back to the Burbs at one in the morning or mm-hmm. midnight is difficult. Uh, and then I also have to get up at, you know, 630 and make waffles and peanut butter toast. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I just got to pick my schedule a little bit more. And then we also opened uh, the Inkwell Tavern over in Burbank and I headed up that project for us. It's a restaurant, bar, Um uh, it's fantastic. I, I hope people will, if you're in town, come visit us and check it out. Um, so we opened that and I've spent pretty much this whole last year living in my house or living in that tavern. So,
0: And you've sent um, me pictures. It looks beautiful and I'm sure the yeah. food is fantastic. Yeah,
1: I will. I will. Um, so, yeah, I, like I said, I've organically disappeared from improv. Um, my friend Lloyd continues to invite me back to the Monday jam. Uh, 10 o'clock, the West Side Comedy Theater. Um, But I just haven't, I haven't, and I think you and I talked about this. I just haven't been inspired to go back yet. I feel like, you know, it's time for other people to have their say. And I, you know, I don't need to say the same things that I've said for 30 years necessarily. Let's let somebody else do the talking.
0: That's great. I love that. I love that. So, um, we are. yeah. So here's a, One of my questions is how how do you use improv or do you use improv in your daily
1: life? Oh, of course. I mean, it's not. I don't. And this goes back to the listing. Like, I don't look at it as improv. I look at it as the way I live my life. You know, it completely changed and reshaped the person that I am Uh, in so many ways. I feel like once you're you're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about, and hopefully, people listening also do. Once you learn to listen, once you truly learn to listen. To something or somebody, it changes your life. You see how many people don't listen. It's, it's a bad comparison, but I look at it like the Matrix. It's like <laughs> woke up, and you can see it all happening, and all these people don't see it happening. Um, I'm you know I'm still a ways away from being the crazy guy on the street corner talking about I see it all, but you know, it, just listen to people, listen to what they're saying, what they're not saying, what their body language is saying just be a master of communication. And that's how, for me, that's what improv has helped me do. Whether it's, I'm working with the employees at the uh, Inkwell Tavern or the customers that come in and I'm just trying to make them feel comfortable and talking with them. And Hey, like, where are you from? You know, just the gift of gab. Um, that's all improv. Uh, when you yeah. get around some friends yeah. who kind of have a shared language and you can do bits and jokes and you know, that's all improv. Um looking at what's right about something rather than what's wrong about something. That's one yes, of, the yes, scenes yes. of my life. Like that's improv, you know, what's right about this gift that Margot just gave me in this scene instead of, uh, I don't know what, yeah, but you know, I don't want to, I don't want to live that way. I want to try to find the things that I enjoy that doesn't mean I don't get frustrated just as much as the next person or angry about, you know, politics i get so angry about them. anyway uh oh yeah oh yeah you know, I, i'm not um you know I, I i'm no different than anybody else i just find that for me the tenets of improv have reshaped my life in so yeah. many great ways yeah it's just beautiful yeah. i'll never leave it because of that right because it's just it's who i am it's not what i do whether there's a stage or not you know, it's been five yeah. years since I've gone on stage. I don't need to go on stage for another five years. I don't need the laughter. You know, it's just, just live it. Listen, just listen.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I am enjoying this so much. Um, my my final question, the final answer sure. um, is.
1: what? Wait, piece- I have a question for you. Uh, wait, before you go, I have a question for you. What is it you enjoy most about improv? What What is something that you enjoy about improv? I love to play. I love
0: to play. Uh-huh. I love to make believe. I love to create. And I just love the unexpected uh, things that will come out of all of us by yeah. listening and right. being open and that old yes ending. Yeah. And when I teach, it's seeing the people's light, eyes light up with the discovery, that they've just yeah, created the something.
1: That's the word, the discoveries, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I love that. Right yeah. on.
0: Yeah. I love, And I love taking classes. I, I just, um, I enjoy it all.
1: I I'm, i admire your thirst for it, uh, and I hope that never leaves you. I hope you Thank can you. doubt Do I mean, you've done, like, what, 150 of these?
0: You're 161.
1: 161. I mean, that's incredible. I, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think Razowski did a bunch. I know he did mm-hmm. a bunch And then some other people have done them as well. But 161 is a wealth of improvisers and knowledge. Like, it should be a vault of this stuff.
0: Thank you. Well, I started because there really weren't many teachers. There weren't any teachers except for my original director, who I love in Naples, Florida. And so it started with me. um, In in fact, I was uh, Skyping with people like Gary Schwartz was one of the first ones to Mm -hmm. learn more about improv or to take lessons from him online before online became a thing and then it was i had met a few people at a a improv festival and i started connecting with them and it it was really selfish because i wanted to learn more about improv and how to be a better improviser and a better person yeah So. And I I teach to wonderfully diverse populations. I teach people with Parkinson's. I teach kids that are on like the autism spectrum and other neurocognitive issues and people with anxiety and 12, I mean, I just love what I'm doing.
1: And And do you see when you're, when you're working with somebody with autism or on the spectrum, do you see improv? focus them or gift them in some way yeah well well, focus
0: is the big gift and the self-confidence and when they're in a group with others who have the same diagnosis to be clinical about it um they're not alone Mm -hmm. they're with others and then that beauty of creating i had a student emily she's in college now but um I watched her for about six or seven years, starting when she was about 11 or 12 years old, Yeah, gain her sense of authority and self-confidence and then become a volunteer teaching.
1: That's amazing. I know. That's amazing.
0: It's, it's beautiful. This just awesome. beautiful. So um, I wanted to I'll ask.
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: N- no, thank you. Of course, it's my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, what advice would you give to an improviser today? What are some things that you have learned along the way that you would think would help somebody else maybe starting out in improv? Uh,
1: sure. I think um, I can answer this in two quick ways. One is uh, uh, be open to all the facets of improv, meaning I think the new improviser comes in and just feeds on the live version of improv. But you know, learn how improv can help your acting, learn how improv can help your writing, um, learn how improv can help you brainstorm for whatever career you're doing. So learn you know, the magic of improv in other ways, as in life also, like I was talking about before. So um, learn it in all those ways. And the second thing I would say is love the process. And I'm sure this is something many guests have said, Um, but I think that if you don't love the process of something, the product feels kind of unearned or unrewarding, if that's the right word, Do you know what I mean? Like, you you know, there's always the, like, I worked for it. So I feel great about getting this. And that's kind of what I subscribe to, which is enjoy the process, you know, takes 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours. So soak it all in, you know, read as much as you can watch as many of, of Margot's uh, interviews as you can, Rizowski's interviews, go to as many improv places as you can find, not just in the United States, all over the world. Yeah. Um, look at how improv is different in, in Japan versus India versus the US versus Europe. Um, it's evolving. It's always evolving. And it's in an interesting place right now where... I think the explosion of improv theaters is uh, is tightening again, it's, it's uh, imploding a little bit, right? And I think that that will reach kind of a, a condensed spot and then it'll evolve again, it'll evolve to something. And I don't know if it'll be a new version of the art form, if it'll be in the writing, if it'll be in the acting. You know, we used to have 2000 improv theaters and four or five major network shows that used improv. And now there may be, like, the jury uses, like, half improv. Oh, yeah. What the heck? (laughs) 30% of the theaters left, you know? Part of that is the the great cleansing of 2020. But, like, uh, you know, it's the art form's going somewhere. So enjoy the process is the the long-winded, rambling note that I'm getting to here. Just enjoy it. Enjoy the fact that on that Saturday you're in that class with those people. And that'll never happen again exactly enjoy the next moment of
0: it thank you so much the joy is definitely in the journey
1: for sure yeah for sure
0: oh well i have had the best i have laughed so much today this was fantastic i'm so glad to get to know you and i really appreciate your time and i'm looking forward to what's what's next for aaron because you you got some great ideas and some, we'll your oh.
1: maybe another tavern. I don't know. The sag strike just ended. So back to acting, we go, let's cross our fingers that I finally booked that role on that 70s show. <laughs> Been canceled for years. So it's going to be a problem, but
0: uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really uh, loved you. getting to know you. Take care now.
1: Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.